Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards, where we look at life, faith, and theology from a different angle. This podcast is brought to you by nobody. So if you would like to support it, you can catch uh, my latest book called The Disappearing Garden, How to Survive Babylon When You Were Made for Eden by going to calebmore.tv. Um, today is a huge honor for me, and it's a huge treat because when it comes to the Reformed church movement, uh, Doug Wilson is the Obi-Wan Kenobi of that movement. <laughs> and I feel like I need to say, help us, Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. Um, so Doug Wilson is a pastor that I've looked up to for many years. Uh, his Wikipedia page, I will tell you a little bit about him, but not nearly as much as what I just said. Uh, he's evangelical theologian, pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and he's a faculty member at New St. Andrews College. He's a author and a speaker. Um, I'm currently reading one of his books right now, When the Man Comes Around, a commentary on the book of Revelations. Doug and I are both post-millennial, which is kind of hard to hold the line when it comes to that worldview yeah. at the moment. But Doug, thanks right. for being here. Great to be with you. Thank you. Um, so since I have your ear for a little bit, there are a lot of people that I talk to and engage with who feel very politically homeless right now. I, I have a hard time considering myself a Republican. I have a hard time seeing exactly where I fit in. And I, I just want to ask you, as you wrote a blog years ago, I think it was 2009, um, called okay. The Five Smooth Stones of theocratic libertarianism. So I tell people all the time when they ask my political view that I'm a theocratic libertarian. I tell them that so they won't ask me any more questions. Can, <laughs> they can, scoot away from Yeah, they just they walk away. away. They're the like, party. okay, I don't want to know what this guy, like it's a bait and nobody ever takes it. Um, right. Help me unpack what that actually means a little bit. Can you kind of explain where, did you come up with that terminology I think, I think that phrase I got from my son, um, Nate Wilson, uh, used a phrase in passing in conversation, and I picked it up. It describes what I, how my thinking works very well. Um, if you just say libertarian, a lot of people will think that you're into pot smoking or you want pot to be legal or you basically you're an anarchist or you don't like authority. That's what libertarianism communicates to some people. And of course, I am a libertarian of sorts in, in that I would like uh, to see free markets. I would like to see people free to conduct any lawful business. So I'm a libertarian when it comes to the sale and manufacture of widgets. Um, but I'm also a conservative when it comes to things like social issues, abortion, homosexual, um, homosexual marriage, things like that. So I'm a conservative and I'm uh, economic libertarian. And the best way I think I can express that is by saying theocratic, God rules. Mm -hmm. I believe in the rule of God, uh, theocratic and libertarian. Uh, many Christians adopted the phrase libertarian because they were affected by what in our family we call the cool shame. Yeah. Um, the, you know, if, if you were a Republican or if you voted for Trump or somebody, you've got, uh, there's the cool shame. How could you do that? How could you be, call yourself a Christian and do that? And if you call yourself 
in a lot of evangelical churches, if you said, I'm a Democrat, everybody looks at you sideways. How can you possibly, you know, because uh, clearly because of issues like abortion and whatnot. But if you say you're a libertarian, people think, oh, that's even more right wing than most of us. Oh, really? It must be OK. Yeah. Yeah. It must be OK. But that then carves out room for sloppiness on sexual ethics and uh, things like drug use and so on. So I, I want to use a term that sort of leans into the cool shame, the worst of libertarianism and the worst of theocracy. <laughs> if uh, so, if if you were elected president as the party and I always people always, you know, debates always happen around uh, election years that get pretty intense. And I never say from the pulpit exactly who I'm voting for because if they found out it was Kanye West, they would fire me immediately. But <laughs> I, I felt that was the easiest way to hedge my bets um, and just to stay sane. Um, if, if you were elected president, and I know you said that would be an exciting three days for you. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> but what would be somebody that had this position? And, and what would be some of the very first things that you would try to embark on to make civilization better for everybody else? What I, this is a hard thing. Basically, what people are afraid of when they think of God's law and living by God's law is they think of you know, a bunch of Reformed theologian weird beards, like, mm -hmm. like so many ayatollahs, um, uh, chopping off hands and executing people for random things. Uh, what, they, what they really don't realize is if we were to go under of the Mosaic law tomorrow, we wouldn't know what to do with all the freedom we had. Yeah. Um, you know, Moses gave us 10 commandments. Mm -hmm. um, you go down to your local law school and look at the federal register. Look, look at, look at yeah. all your state laws. It's shelf after shelf of laws and fine print. And then federal law, uh, we, we are living under a rock pile of, laws. Yeah. God gave us, God gave us 10 that you could write on an index card. Yeah. I, I just right. had, uh, Dr. Sandra Richter. I don't know if you know who that is. Uh, she's on the NIV translation committee and she's an expert in Deuteronomy. And we were talking about marriage laws. Uh, in fact, it just got released mm -hmm. today. And she said she would feel more comfortable with her daughter's living under those marriage laws in that time and space, she'd be much more comfortable with her walking around in iron age times than she would be at the university near her home. That it would that be a much safer environment. That is exactly true. And so one, if I were president, the first thing I would do is I would sign an executive order that uh, rescinded all previous executive orders by every president. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and outlaw all executive orders yeah, yeah, after that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, you know, we're, we're we're all done. You know, uh, we're all done with that. There was um, one. There was one thing that you said that I really liked, but I kind of needed fleshed out. And maybe maybe that's just me. But you said free grace leads to free men, uh, which leads to free market. Like there's a straight line there. Right. Can you right. expand on that at all? Sure. If um, John, John Adams, our second president, said that our Constitution presupposes a moral and a religious people. He said it is, it is wholly unfit for any other. So if you have a if you have a thousand unregenerate human beings and you throw them into a marketplace, you give them all a hundred dollars and a hundred dollars worth of goods. 
and you throw them into a big marketplace, you're not going to get a libertarian paradise. Which what you're going to get is certain people cheating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, they're they're going to start to game the they're going to start to game the system, and and then you're going to have to have regulators and and somebody to come in and say you can't cheat you and the and the uh, you're going to try to fix the system by means of external coercion, but the genius of the gospel is that it gives us internal internal restraint. Yeah. So um, in uh, in Hebrews ten when God is to talking about the features of the new covenant and he pulls out two standout features that I will, I will forgive their sins and I will write my law on their heart, on their hearts and on their minds. So the internalization of the law is one of the great features of the new covenant. So you have a thousand men and they all call, they all become Christians. Mm-hmm. Their sins are forgiven and the law is internalized. All of a sudden they've got, there's an internal restraint. The Holy Spirit is given to them, and self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if if you have a bunch of people who don't have self-control, if they're slaves to sin, those people cannot build a free society. How can slaves build a free society? Okay, but uh, slaves to righteousness, in Paul's sense in Romans, are freed from sin, and if they're freed from sin— They've got internal restraint, and you can uh, jettison some of the external restraints because everybody knows how to behave, right? And uh, and so free grace leads to forgiven men, leads to free men, and those free men are able to build a free market. They're, they're able to um, build a marketplace where people respect one another. It's as though Christianity has a self-correcting nature about it, like hardwired yeah. into it that the secular yes. world doesn't have. So the secular world spins into chaos because there's no internal self-correcting nature. Right. And, and the, when the chaos becomes intolerable, then, of course, someone's, you're, you're going to call on a strongman dictator. Because people can't live in anarchy. They can't live in chaos. So they're going to call out for a strongman to come in and knock some heads and 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 make everybody behave, but that's going to be external coercion. Yeah, right. Everybody, uh, you chop off heads, you knock some heads together, and everybody behaves. But it's 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 not freedom because it's coercive. It's applied from the outside, and this is what Francis Schaeffer used to be uh, talk about a lot. He said when the breakdown of the Christian consensus that the West had was a breakdown that was inviting the totalitarians in the tyrants were going to come in because when people don't have self-control tyranny is necessary, right? It's yeah. So if Christianity does have this self-correcting nature though, I I feel like at this time it's almost fair to say we might be kind of long overdue for a correction that there hopefully is a swing coming and yeah, Correct me if I'm wrong, but here in Oklahoma, this is kind of the birthplace of the prosperity gospel. Um, Oral Roberts University and name it, claim it stuff. Um, Mike Iaconelli once said that, what's up with Tulsa? Just meaning we're the birthplace of a lot of that. And it's very strong here. And so is the quote unquote evangelical movement. And they seem to, the prosperity gospel, like Donald Trump had all the things that the prosperity gospel loves. 
power, money, influence, the pretty wife, the nice car, the airplane. Those are all idols that the prosperity gospel props up. And it's almost as though we created a king who's that strong man um, that we could fall in line with. How do we swing back to something where we're not looking for somebody in an office to fill that role, but reminding the church who's already on the throne? Yeah. So in um, um, basically what this boils down to, you said, are we due for a correction? We're absolutely due for a correction. But the church is not has not been able to supply the correction to the broader society that it has done in the past because the church itself needs to go through a correction. Uh, judgment has to begin with the house of God. So before we can be the corrective for the broader society, there has to be a reformation and revival within the church so that we get our act together. Uh, A.W. Tozer once said, if revival means getting more of what we have going on right now, we most certainly do not need revival. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. We need to, we need to stop doing some of the things that we're doing. We need to repent of some of the things that we're doing now, but repentance is not just the health and wealth guys. Uh, repentance is also for the the people, you know, the health and wealth guys believe that we automatically lose, uh, automatically win. Mm-hmm. But then there's the two kingdom guys uh, who believe that we automatically lose. Yeah. Uh, so the God, some people say God wants you uh, to win all the time. Other people say that God wants you to lose all the time. But if you look at Hebrews 11 and the great hall of faith, it, there's a section in there where it says certain men by faith, stopped the mouths of lions, they conquered kingdoms, they put their enemies to flight, and and you keep going down. And then you get to the part where, and we're sawn in two, and we're uh, wandered in caves. And you say, oh, walking by faith means that sometimes you win and put the enemies to flight, and you stop the mouths of lions, and other times you're eaten by lions. Yeah. And, and so faith knows how to recognize what moment we're in? Should we should we be fighting to win, or should we be fighting um, uh, as martyr as the martyrs did? So we, in some ways, from when I when I talk to Christians, um, the thing they're worried about with whoever is in a White House is that they are going to lose some of their comforts. It's going to be hard on my 401k, or they're going to do this. They they're seem to be more worried about comfort than they are, is this person a godly person making the world more godly? And so do you right. think it's possible that one of the things that God is going to do is just make us all very uncomfortable? Uh, yes, and I think he is doing that. And uh, my wife and I, back in the 70s, when Francis Schaeffer released How Should We Then Live?, I, I watched it back then and read the book back then. My wife and I just recently went through the series again, How Should We Then Live? And it was remarkable. This was done in the mid-70s. And Francis Schaeffer said, when uh, tyranny comes to America, it's going to be, the bait is going to be personal peace and affluency. Right? That, he said that that's, that's what's going to cause us to uh, accept a settlement that we ought not to accept personal peace and affluence. We want to be comfortable. And I think uh, we should be concerned about the fact that they're killing babies. 
we should be concerned about the fact that that uh, people who um, people believe that a man can marry a man and he can't. A woman can marry a woman. She can't. Uh, we want to say that you can pick your own pronoun and be anything you want, but you can't. Um, th- these things are uh, offensive to God, and we ought to have zeal for his house consume us, not zeal for our houses. The thing that's going to cause a lot of problems is as soon as you say, I'm a theocratic libertarian, they're like, that's a theocracy. Nobody wants a theocracy. But there's, yeah. always, there's always a God of a system, right? Right. Every... Every human society is a theocracy. The only question is who's Theo? Yeah. Right? Which, which God? Yeah. So um, every, every society has a point of ultimate appeal. Every society has a, uh, a place where you can't, you can't appeal past that point any further. There's the ultimate authority in that system. And the ultimate authority within any system is the God of the system. And if it's a human authority, then it's a humanistic religion. Mm-hmm. If it's if you're Muslim, it's Allah. If if you're a Christian, it ought ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ. But for many Christians, they want to say, "Oh, I'm a Christian on Sunday," or Jesus is in charge of where I go when I die. Yeah, but he he's not in charge of anything that has to do with how the United States is governed. So as a pastor, I find myself trying to figure out, because this is new territory for me. I mean, I'm, I'm only 41 years old, and I, I asked a gentleman who is 88 in our church if he's ever seen it this bad before. He says, no, I've never seen it this bad. I said, you're not supposed to say that. I'm coming to you for hope and direction and guidance. I'm surrounding myself with wise counsel. My wise counsel is like, we don't know what to do. It's too bad. I, I'm trying to figure out how do I lead other people or just encourage and serve other people to kind of, yeah. So, yeah. so I've, what I've been telling our people is that I, I want to be, I want our people to be simultaneously overwhelmed and encouraged because if they're just encouraged, it's probably because somebody's blowing sunshine at them. Mm-hmm. If, if they're just discouraged, they're not, they're going to be in no shape to fight. You know, you don't want to you don't want a discouraged army, but neither do you want an army of 10 people going out against 100,000 encouraged in their own daydreaming. Right? <laughs> you want you want to have a realistic assessment of where things are. And what I've been describing, our the way I describe our times to our people is that this is a period of tumultuous mercy. Mm. OK, this yeah. is a period of this is a period of tumultuous mercy. We are living in a time when all the idols are coming down. Yeah. All right. Um, higher education in America has been one of the chief is those higher education in America is the lymph nodes from which the cancer has been spreading mm-hmm. everywhere. And higher education is in a in a bad way. Public schools are in a are in a bad way. Uh, the economy of our small town here in Moscow is reeling, not because of things that Christians did to it, but because of what the secularists have done to their own system with the lockdowns and, and the masks and the, the fear and the panic. I think, okay, we're living in a time, this is a time of great opportunity. This is a time of great opportunity, but it's going to be tumultuous, tumultuous mercy. I've started to see actually like a little bit of unity from both sides and recognizing 
how stupid things have gotten. Uh, there is there is a uh, a new Occupy Wall Street movement going on caused by the Reddit users and their uh, them having fun with the hedge funds and stuff, which has been fantastic to watch. But there was somebody from a, a Republican group and then somebody from a liberal group, and they were standing together, united in their disgust of this big machine that's kind of playing on everybody. Is that something that's going to be short-lived, you think? Or is there some – eventually, are we going to get united by our hatred of something and somebody's going to start looking for a better way? Um. Yeah, I think I think alliances like that are going to be fleeting. I, I, I because I really believe that there has to be a um, a clarion call from the Christian Church with Christians as Christians. I think a secular right winger and a secular left winger might team up in their hatred of Wall Street. As soon as they start talking about abortion, they're going to be like, "It's it's over." Yeah, it's over. Um, but basically, Christians are going to be persona non grata through the whole thing because we love Jesus, love his law, believe that we believe that Jesus ought to be confessed as Lord. Um, that's the theocratic part. But then the libertarian part is all, is just as scary for many people because they're, they don't want to make their own choices. They don't no. want to be responsible for their own choices, which is what the libertarian side gets them. Yeah, you, you are responsible for your own actions. There are consequences to those actions, and you're going to bear the full weight of that. Is right. Now, I, I discovered you many years ago. I was at a bookstore, a used bookstore, and I picked up a book by a guy named Greg Bonson. And I had been studying apologetics. I, I'm a former atheist, and uh, as I was studying apologetics, I came upon that, and I was like, I've never heard this kind of presuppositional, this foundation stuff, like, which right. is the same for theocratic libertarian stuff, that there is a foundation that all society is built upon. If you ignore that foundation for too long, your worldview is going to crumble. And so right. when I started researching, how come nobody's doing this presuppositional stuff? I found your debate with Hitchens. And okay. yeah. if I can just uh, turn into a fanboy for a second... That was, apart from what I've heard from Bonson, the most articulate view of the presuppositional case I'd ever heard. And you still don't hear it very often. You you still don't hear that articulated. And that kind of, for those who are listening, uh, the presuppositional view is, is fairly simple. It's if you get rid of God, you get rid of everything that makes society and life make sense. You, you throw out the laws of physics, the laws of morality, the laws of logic, the laws of mathematics. None of it exists anymore because you need that lawgiver. How can we begin to encourage people to see and build that foundation for not just Christianity, but also for governance using kind of a presuppositional approach? I think this is, frankly, I think this is the ideal moment in which to make the presuppositional case. Because 10 years ago, when I was debating Christopher Hitchens, I could say something without presupposing God. Unless you presuppose God, nothing makes any sense. Everything is crazy because you don't have a foundation to build on. And what Hitchens and others could do is say, what do you mean everything's crazy? And he could point to a world that seems that seemed to be running very nicely without God. I mean, everybody drove on the right side of the road and and people crossed at the 
you know, walk, don't walk signs. And, you know, there seemed to be order out there. Well, we are entering into a moment where when I make the claim without God, a secular society has no foundation that will prevent everything from going insane. Well, now the secularist, <laughs> he's got nothing to point to except everything going insane. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This right. Every, everything. Turning out to chaos. Yeah. Yeah. It's turning out to chaos. So now my case, my uh, my point back then when society was running somewhat or in an orderly way, and this is a Van, uh, Cornelius Van Til uh, articulated this, and that is non-believers have to borrow from the Christian worldview in order to make their systems go. And that's what Christians, that's what non-Christians were doing 10 years ago, is they were borrowing, yeah. right? Or uh, put another way, the prodigal son took his father's money but, and, and was, had not run out yet. He was, able, he was still able to buy drinks for everybody. He was still able to host a party because he still had some of his father's money. Yeah. But, eventually, but eventually the day came, and it was somewhere in the year 2020. The prodigal son ran out of money. <laughs> he, had no more of, he had no more of his father's capital to spend. And the presuppositionalist who's wanting to maintain all the time, you atheists are doing nothing but spending your father's money. Now we can point to them and say, so you, you want to say that you're not? Why don't you buy me around? To, why don't you buy us around to drinks then? Why don't you pay for a world that makes sense? Well, they, they can't anymore. Everything has devolved into chaos. Hmm. I, I've noticed hanging out with, my non-believer friends and neighbors that the new atheism seems to be gone. Like nobody cares about that anymore. Yeah. In fact, I used to do a lot of debates with atheists and now I, I'll even say I might as well be talking to a flat earther. Like this is what it feels like. So, so if you ever want to know what a talk, it's like to talk to a flat earther, it's the same as talking to an atheist. And I think everybody else has started to feel that way. And people like Jordan Peterson, who, yeah brings in his own version. It's kind of a mixture. And right. it, he, he's, there's an attempt that you can see to at least try to make some sense out of the world. Hey, make your bed, right? You know, that's his step one, right. and his 12 rules, whatever. It's just like, make your bed. Here's a little bit of order. So is, is he kind of a symbol that we are heading back that way? Or is that a distraction? Well, I think I think he's just, uh, emblematic of the fact that people are hungry for something that's transcendent, that's yeah. outside of the reach of Congress. I, I don't want to govern. I don't want to live in a system where the highest authority is Nancy Pelosi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, you know, what? Come on. That sounds great. That sounds yeah, great. what's wrong with you? What's yeah. wrong with you? Um, so what? Um, um, what Jordan Peterson is doing is I read his, I read his book, 12 rules, which was, I, I described it in a review as uh, long, uh, long stretches of common grace on fire, uh, punctuated with, you know, silliness, you know, there's silly spots and then there's common grace on fire, but he, uh, he's a, he's a, um, relying, I think, on, on Jungian archetypes. Yeah. But, but it's sort of, it's still outside of, uh, Congress can't do anything about it. Yeah. You know, the, the archetypes are, are bigger than we are. Um, and I had the feeling that 
uh, reading that book is that Peterson needs to be very careful because I think he's in danger of becoming a Christian. Yes, um, yes. There, there's enough. There's enough of a genuine respect that he has for Jesus mm-hmm. and for the the way that Christians live that um, I think he's in danger, basically. If of, he of, had a few more conversations with actually good theologians, I think right. it would be a big change for him. Because his philosophy, he's, he's a very bright person. But I've listened to him talk about the Bible, and, and he doesn't even know fifth grade theology. He's seemed to miss big areas of that. Now, I guess my final little section that we can jump into, um, as a post-millennial, which is not a popular view in the Southern Baptist church, I have a lot of people who come up and say, is this the end times? Are we in the end times? That's probably the question I'm asked the most. Is this uh, an elderly lady came up to me on Sunday morning. And she says, I was reading about the plagues and revelations. This is one of them. And I, I was trying to encourage her, like those are already happened. We're good. We're good. Things are going to get better. Um, how, hey, maybe can you just take two minutes and sell us on post-millennialism anyways and unpack for people who have never heard that okay. term? So first I'll, I'll define it. Yeah. Postmillennialism is the um, there's three basic views: pre-mill, ah-mill, and post-mill, and they're all they all take their names by where you place the second coming of Christ, with reference to the millennium of Revelation 20. So a premillennialist puts the second coming pre-millennium, Jesus comes back, and then there's the millennium. The amillennialist that's a term of negation, where you say there is no literal earthly millennium. But there's a millennium in the heavenly realms where we reign, spiritually speaking, with Christ. And then the post-millennialist is the person who says that the millennium happens, and then at the end of it, post-millennium, Christ returns. So those are the three uh, positions. The post-mill guy, the post-mill people, have an optimistic eschatology with regard to human history. They believe that the Great Commission will be successfully fulfilled in time and in history, before the second coming of Christ, that uh, and the, the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and then the end will come. All right, so when you say that, a lot of uh, pre-mill believers today look around at the newspapers and their, what they see happening on the Internet, and they say, are you smoking something? What are you talking about? Things are getting worse and worse, like the lady you were talking about. Um, but the, post, the post-millennial position is not that the kingdom of God takes off like a rocket ship. And then every second, it's 100 feet higher in the air. It's more like walking up the side of a mountain range, and you go up for half a mile and then down into a crevice. Then you go up for another couple of miles and then into a canyon. And then up, it's, it's a three steps forward, one step back, five steps forward, three steps back kind of endeavor. So if you look at 2,000 years of church history and you try to maintain that every year has been wilder and better and more exciting for the kingdom than the previous year, that leaves out declensions and rebellions and apostasies and disasters. But if you take it as walking up the side of a mountain, not the rocket ship taking off, then you you budget for uh, periods of declension, which we are now in. We're, we're in one of those. 
So if you look at it in one-year increments or five-year increments, you're going to have trouble. But look at church history in 500-year increments. All right. Would you rather be living today, 2020, or in 1520? Would you rather be living in 1520 or 1020? Would you rather be living in 1020 or 520? All right now, five, with 500-year increments, you can see you can see the progress. Yeah. So, um, if we have this hope that a the gospel is actually as effective as Jesus says it's going to be, that it's it's going to accomplish its mission, when we look at this political spectrum, we can suffer the hard times without becoming reactionary. We can move forward with a calm, cool, and collectiveness and prayerfully ask that Jesus do whatever he needs to do to turn his church back to them, even if that means having Biden president. Right, right. So I would rather, so, so just as a post-millennial, conservative, Bible-believing believing Christian, I would rather live in an impoverished country that didn't kill babies than in a rich country that did. Yeah. It'd be a much smaller country. uh, Yeah. yeah. And I believe that God is visiting the consequences of our own stupidity on us. But here's the good news. Um, In the long run, stupidity never works. It just, (laughs) it's a, it's a terrible plan. (laughs) Right. It's a terrible plan. Uh, Herbert Stein was an economist who came up with a great, I think it's called Stein's law. Is it anything that cannot continue on indefinitely? Won't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Is there, uh, now you've written a lot of books. Uh, is there a book though for you that's been really helpful in kind of understanding and unpacking current cultural events? Is there something that's really like, man, I need to go back and read this one again because it really had its uh, finger on the pulse? I, was, I would say that uh, the, the, the book that is, enjoying something of a, of a resurgence now uh, is a book I wrote called Rules for Reformers. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's, it was a takeoff on Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. It's a Christian version of Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, where I try to analyze what Christians ought to be doing in a moment like ours. So do we need to go and start a commune? Because I've had some people say, hey, we have some land. If things get bad, we'll just move out there. Or do we stay? Culture wars can only be fought in the culture, right? Right. How, how do we fight? I know I'm just asking a lot of how-tos, but I'm really just wanting to pick your brain because I, I, I'm just curious. Yeah. How do we effectively fight in the culture as Christians instead of just creating Mardell's, which is God's Walmart, right? Like how we just create our own version. The secular people do something that everybody likes. And we go, well, let's make a Christian version of that. And it's usually not as good as what the secular people do. Like Christian video games or Christian movies kind of suck, right? They're not very good. So how do we fight well in a culture war uh, when the culture are kings of entertainment? Yeah, so one of the things I would say is in every successful, in every battle where you've got a general who's thinking or an admiral who's thinking, every successful battle will have desperate and heroic last stands 
you know, where you, you take, you know, you take your stand on that hill and you defend it and you win through, but there, you also have tactical readjustments and retreats and regroupings and that sort of thing. Um, for, for your listeners, the people out there, if they say, should I head for the tall grass or should I make my stand here? I would say, well, where's here? You know, are you, so there are some people who, let's say you're living in downtown Chicago. Um, I think that might not be the most strategic swamp to try to defend. Okay. Uh, there might be other people who have occupied a place that's defensible. There's a lot of other Christians around them. Um, it might make sense to take your stand here. So there was nothing, there was nothing wrong with the Christians who stayed in England during Cromwell's reign. There was nothing wrong with the Christians who came to America, right? Uh, here in Moscow, Idaho, uh, the small town where I am, we have, there's a large number of refugees and reinforcements from all over the country that are arriving here on a week, on a weekly basis. And, uh, and it's ranges from, I've got to get the heck out of California. Uh, you know, I, I can't bring up my kids there. I can't bring up my kids there, which is, a if that's a, you know, your situation, if that's the case, then welcome. You're, you're welcome here. So I think that some Christians should stay right where they are and some Christians should relocate. Pastor Doug, it has uh, been great to visit with you, and thanks for all the insight. I think it's really helpful. Um, I know everybody has dug into their sides really, really hard right now, and mm-hmm. I think we need to have another voice out there. The church does, besides Christians are Republican by default. Uh, right. Is there any chance of a third party that makes sense ever actually happening, or do we try to reform what we have? Yeah, I think uh, reforming what we have, I think, is um, I, th- I, I, I would prefer to reform what we will have after the current thing blows up. <laughs> so I, I think that if you took the Democratic Party and the Republican Party as they are this moment, I don't think that either one of them is going to last too long. And I think we should wait till it blows up and see if there's anything in the pieces that's reformable. And if there isn't, then maybe start something new. A lot of times in these movements that we've seen throughout Christendom where we have that kind of turning point and we go back, there's always a couple of people that have, uh, maybe it's in hindsight that we think they stood out front, um, or maybe they actually did stand out front. Do we have many voices like that anymore of people that, like, hey, when things hit the fan, we can look at these people and say, man, they're, they're right there on the front lines, or we will only find that out when it's all over. Yeah, I, I honestly think that one of the things, one of the great things that 2020 revealed was the failure of our evangelical leadership. I, I just think it's been the, the way the top tier, the name, the name recognition Christians at the top, I think they have largely abandoned us and just laid low when they should have, when they should have stood tall. And the one exception I can think of would be John MacArthur. Mm, yeah. uh, I think I think John MacArthur did the sort of thing that a Christian leader ought to do. Yeah. Um, everybody else, I think, has just kept their head down. There's a lot of celebrity Christians. A lot of people want to be a pastor, and if you've been a pastor, you go, "Why would you ever want to do that?" You know. But there is a certain celebrity status now. Wherever they they all look cool, and right. um, 
I don't know what cool is anymore, so I'm not too worried about it. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's no, been thank great. You for having me. Yes, thank you. Okay, hey, thanks. If I could uh, yeah. just say it is, you have meant so much to my life. And I, I yeah. really mean that, and I'll get choked up. Uh, I've been doing church planning now for 15, 16 years, and I've, my wife and I f- have fought really hard in a place where Christianity has just become the most boring country club ever. And we've got the largest food and clothing ministry in an area, but there's a mega church two blocks down who sends everybody our way. And our little church uh, of only 100 people. So we took over two years ago when there was three people in the pews, all of them 65 years old or older. And um, now we're reaching over 100 people every Sunday. And God has just continued to bless this ministry. But uh, I've gone back to your resources and your sermons and your blogs many times. So from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you very much. Brother, thank you so much. Yep. God bless. bless. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Bye.